0: Father, thank you that you are our salvation. Thank you that you sent Jesus to be our redeemer, to set us free from sin and death and hell. He won the victory, and we share in his victory if we are united to him. And so we thank you that we stand before you now, righteous because of Christ and his righteousness, forgiven because of Christ's atonement. Welcome to be in your presence now and forever because of your grace working in us and for us. And so thank you, Lord, that we can open your word together now. Lord, we need your grace to, um, for everything <laughs> to breathe. You give all life and breath and all things We need your grace to understand what we read and hear and then we need your grace to work in our hearts to respond appropriately. I pray for anyone who is here who doesn't know Jesus that even today as they hear about his work that you would show them their need for this great and only Savior and that you would draw them to him. It's in his name we pray, amen. Before we start a new series, I wanted to finish the series we started back before Christmas. And since it's been a while, let me remind you of some of the realities that we saw in the first two chapters of Hebrews. We saw that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who created and sustains and owns all things in the universe. And in the miracle that we celebrated last month, he became a human being like us. Why? Well, so far we've seen it was to restore what was lost in the fall and to deal decisively with the power and fear of death and to bring many people into God's family forever. Our text for today tells us some more encouraging truth about who Jesus is and why he became one of us. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 16 through 18 to begin with. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 16. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for since he himself was tempted in that which he was has suffered he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted so look again at verse 17 why did jesus have to become like his brothers in all things why was that necessary and the author tells us so that because or in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So what is a priest? If you look it up in Webster's dictionary, it means one authorized to perform sacred rites, especially as a mediator between humans and God. So Jesus became one of us in order to be a mediator between us and God. In fact, he's the only mediator. 1 Timothy 2:5 says it very clearly, there's one God And there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So what's a mediator? Let's say two siblings are experiencing some relationship drama. Maybe you saw that at Christmas or other times when the family's together. And you as a parent or as a sibling try to intervene on behalf of both of them to try to bring them together. So a person in that kind of peacemaking role is a a go-between or a mediator. Jesus is perfectly qualified to represent both God because he is fully God and man because he became a man to bring about peace between us. Jesus is no ordinary priest. He's a high priest. And the high priest was selected to offer a sacrifice for sin on the day of atonement. Once a year, the high priest entered God's presence in the Holy of Holies and offered a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. But that was just a shadow Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. So if you're in Hebrews, turn over to Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And the end of verse 17 tells us that his sacrifice was a propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a big word. It just means a sacrifice that takes away God's wrath his holy hatred of sin and evil, and his righteous commitment to punish it appropriately. So we're going to sing In Christ Alone as we close today. And last year was the 20th anniversary of that song being written. And I read an article about a major denomination that wanted to include that song in a new hymn book that was coming out. Uh, But they wanted to change the words. So they didn't like the original lyrics that we'll sing this this morning that say, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to change that. But the uh, hymn writers or the songwriters didn't give permission. And so the song didn't make the cut into the hymn book. But the wrath of God isn't just a phrase that shows up in a song. It's a reality that shows up in the Bible. Just two examples from the New Testament. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then in Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Let's actually start in 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So the wrath of God is real, and it's awful, and we need to be rescued from it. And verse 17 says, Jesus made a sacrifice that, took away that wrath that we deserved so that we never have to worry about experiencing it that's an awesome thing first john 4:10 says it this way first john 4:10 in this is love not that we love god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So isn't it interesting, both in Romans 5 and in 1 John 4, God's love and God's wrath are pretty much in the same sentence or so. It's both. God is love, yes. And he does have a holy commitment against sin and evil. Verse 17 also describes what kind of high priest Jesus is. It tells us he's a merciful and faithful high priest. Faithful means we can count on him to be everything we need him to be as a high priest and to do everything he says he will do. We can depend on him to be our all-sufficient mediator who brought about peace with God and is still interceding for us. He, Jesus prays for us. That was a verse I thought about in the last few weeks a lot, that the Spirit intercedes for us. We see that in Romans eight twenty six. Jesus himself prays for us. I mean, I loved it that you guys prayed for Angela and I That was a wonderful thing, and we really did sense that and are convinced it made a difference. Jesus prays for us. So in Hebrews 7, 25, it says, Therefore, Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then in Romans 8, Romans 8 says, Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, or rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Well, Jesus is a merciful high priest. He's full of mercy. Mercy is tender compassion for and inclination to help those in misery or distress. You can see it illustrated in the story of the Good Samaritan. You all know the story. I want you to notice some phrases. So in Luke 10, starting in 33, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three proved to be a neighbor The man who fell into the robber's hands, and he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. So you see how that definition happens? Felt compassion, inclined to help, and actually did help, and that's called mercy. And so that tells us our high priest, Jesus, has great compassion for us, he has tender concern for his children and he has a strong desire to help us in our need and distress closely related turn over to chapter 4 verse 15 back in hebrews hebrews 4:15 for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So back in the 1600s, Thomas Goodwin wrote a book on just this verse. And the title of the book is, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Toward Sinners on Earth. Or a treatise demonstrating the gracious disposition and tender affection of Christ unto his members under all sorts of infirmities, either of sin. Or misery. Infirmity is just a word for weaknesses. So we all have weaknesses. Sometimes we feel it more than others. But we're all weak. And we all need help. And the author of Hebrews uses a double negative to reassure us. Jesus can and does and always will sympathize with our weaknesses. Jerry Bridges says the word translated as sympathize means far more than the popular meaning to feel sorry for. It is the capacity for sharing or understanding the feelings of another person. This feeling can be felt only by a person who has experienced the same or similar trials and who, consequently, understands what the other person is going through and has a desire to relieve the other's distress. So about 25 years ago, Angela and I went up to St. Luke's Hospital, and the nurse working that shift was very nice and very well-trained and very competent but wasn't really able to understand what Angela was experiencing. Why? Because he had never had a baby. He could guess what it was like, but he could not sympathize the way a nurse who had gone through labor and delivery could. And so one of the reasons Jesus became like us is so that we would know that he knows what it's like to live life as a human in this fallen world. Jesus knows what it's like to be weary. He understands what it's like to be misunderstood and mistreated. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, so he was able to sympathize with us in our sorrows. He experienced unspeakable suffering so he can identify with us in our pain. He is a high priest who really understands and cares. Dane Ortland wrote, The reason that Jesus is in such close solidarity with us is that the difficult path we are on is not unique to us. He has journeyed on it himself. It is not only that Jesus can relieve us from our troubles like a doctor prescribing medicine, it is also that before any relief comes, he is with us in our troubles like a doctor who has endured the same disease. Well, Jesus knows all about human experience, including the very common human experience of being tempted. We saw that in 4.15. He was one who was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And then back to 2.18. It says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So Jesus is able to help us when we're tempted because he knows what it's like to be tempted. So for example, uh, if someone says or does something unkind to us, he, it's it's isn't it tempting to want to get back in some way? I mean, sometimes even family members, we feel slighted or didn't like that little comment or whatever. There's this Oh yeah, well, right? Don't tell me I'm the only person that ever feels that way. We're all humans here, folks. (laughs) Somebody hurts our feelings. Somebody says something unkind or does something kind. We want them to experience some kind of consequence, and that might be in subtle or not so subtle ways. And Jesus not only understands firsthand what that's like, what it's like to be wronged by other people again and again, just read the Gospels, he is willing and able to help us in that situation. He knows how powerful the desire to get back at people is and he always resisted it. So go to 1st Peter chapter 2 1st Peter chapter 2 beginning at verse 21. 1 Peter 2.21, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, that's more than just an unkind word. That's just hurling insults and just really being nasty. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So we we can't follow that example that Peter holds up for us on our own strength. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, including that. And so we call on Jesus And because verse 18 is in our Bibles, we know we can ask him for help. And so we pray, Lord, give me the strength I need to keep my mouth shut instead of making a snarky comment. Enable me by your power to overcome the temptation to get even in some way. Lord, help me to entrust myself and this situation and that other person, all of it seems so unfair, to him who judges righteously. And so Jesus can help us when we're tempted. That's just one example of temptation. Whatever it is, he is willing and able to help us. And not just in times of temptation, but all kinds of other times as well. Look at verse 2.16 back in Hebrews. Hebrews 2.16 says, For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. And you might be saying, well, I'm not Jewish, so... I don't know what that has to do with me, but go to Galatians and you'll see if you're a believer in Christ this morning, you are included in the people Jesus helps. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 and verse 29, verse 7. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. So if you're of faith, if you put your trust in Jesus, you're considered a son of Abraham. And then verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. Heirs according to promise. Who does Jesus help? Abraham's descendants. So we're part of this promise. And Hebrews 2.16, the word help in verse 16 is literally take hold of which is used later in Hebrews 8, 9, where it says, on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. He took hold of Israel by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. So Jesus holds us up. He helps us. Whatever the need is, whatever time of day it is, day or night, 24-7, Jesus is always ready and willing to help us. So what difference does or could it make that Jesus became like us in order to be our merciful high priest. We don't have to guess how to apply these verses because the author gives us two appropriate responses. So in chapter 4, verse 14, Therefore, in light of what I've already said about Jesus, since we have a great high priest, Who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So, confession means to say the same thing or to make a verbal acknowledgement or to profess allegiance. It's the idea in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth, he confesses, resulting in Salvation. So that was a confession that many who are reading this letter to the Hebrews had made. And they're tempted to go back to their old religion of being Jewish. And Hebrews is about, no, don't do that. And so the next thing is, hold fast. Which means, don't let go. Don't turn away from what you have. Keep hanging on to your faith in Jesus. And if you look at this book... These verses we looked at today, 2, 16 through 18, and 4, 14 to 16, are bookends, and everything in between is a discussion of, of perseverance of the saints. It's about, so let me just show you a couple of verses that use that same word, hold fast, in the middle, the sandwich part of this. In 3, 6, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Verse 14, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So that's what's at stake in 3 and 4. And the bookends of 3 and 4 are, we have a great high priest. And as we've seen in other texts over the years, Jesus is the one who is going to preserve his own to the end. That's why we sing, he will hold me fast. And love that song. It's not up to how strong we hold on, though we're called to hold on. But we will hold on if we're believers because he holds us fast. So um, Hebrews 10.23 says this. I love how it connects that. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. You may be pretty faithful, maybe not so faithful, but the one who promised is faithful and he's going to hold us fast. That's our hope (laughs) or we're all goners. The second application is in 4.16. Back in Hebrews. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, in light of everything I've just told about Jesus, our high priest, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy And find grace to help in time of need. So because we have a merciful, faithful, sympathetic high priest like Jesus, we can approach God on the throne of grace with confidence. Not sheepishly, because of our sins and we feel unworthy to be there. Not timidly with doubts and fears, or are we really welcome to come into God's presence or not? So maybe we have doubts about that, but boldly, knowing we are invited to come and accepted into God's presence because Jesus is our mediator. So a couple of verses about that: Hebrews ten nineteen. Hebrews ten nineteen says, "Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We come because of Jesus. Or in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. Ephesians 3, 11 and 12. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. And as we draw near to the throne, we receive mercy. We're needy and weak and distressed and sometimes miserable, and he's always full of compassion and mercy for us. And I hope you've tasted that. I've had recent tastes. but I hope you've had tastes of that. And we find grace to help in time of need. John Piper says, grace for a well-timed help. We need help on a regular basis, like at least every day. And especially in times of need, maybe special times of trial or crisis. But we never deserve the help that we need. You ever thought about that? You can never come to God and say, I want to cash in some credits here. I, I need a favor and Here's why I deserve you to do this. It's always and only because of God's grace. So we find grace to help in time of need. Well, as we close, on what basis do you approach God? Not just now, as we come to worship or as you pray, but ultimately when you stand before him on judgment day. And there's basically only two ways in the world. One is based on our own merit, what we think we deserve because of who we are and what we've done, or based on the mercy of God and what Christ has done. Those are the only two options. And Jesus told a story about those two approaches and the outcomes of each in Luke 18. So I invite you to turn to Luke 18. starting at verse 9. Luke 18, verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. See that? And viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And so this man obviously assumes he's in good shape with God, assumes God will accept him later into heaven. Because look how good he is. He does all these good things. He doesn't do all those bad things like other people. And everybody listening to this story the first time would have assumed. Yeah, this guy is good to go. But then read verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So tax collectors, you might know, were corrupt and dishonest. And so he knows he can't appeal to God to reward him for anything good. He just cries out for mercy. And if you have an alternate reading in your margin, like I do, it it says, be propitious. Propitious. Remember? Propitiation, a sacrifice that takes away God's wrath. So here he is, recognizing he's an unworthy sinner, pleading for mercy that will remove the wrath he knows he deserves, which we know from Hebrews was taken away because of Jesus. So which, work, which way is going to work? Verse 14. Jesus says, here's the conclusion. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. So justified means right or righteous in God's sight. It means to be perfectly acceptable before God. Jesus doesn't say both ways work. That's a very common theme in our culture. Always go to God if you want to, because they're sincere. This Pharisee is as sincere as the day is long. But he, he doesn't go home justified. The man who cried out for mercy based on propitiation goes home justified. So what about you this morning? Will you be going to your house justified today? Or are you still not right in God's sight and still in danger of the wrath to come? If God is convicting you of your need, acknowledge, I'm not right before God. I've disobeyed him in thought, word, and deed. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good, and who never sinned. So if you're pinning your hopes on that, like, oh, I'm righteous, I always do good, I never sin." You're, you're doomed. There's no such thing. So repent of being content with sin and turn from any attempt to earn God's acceptance by your own merit. Titus 3.5. I think Brett preached on this one of the Sundays I was gone. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So it's not about our righteousness, it's about his mercy. That's our only hope. So cry out for mercy. Trust Jesus to do everything necessary to rescue you from sin and bring you to God. Believe his death on the cross, remove the wrath we deserve, and purchase the forgiveness we don't deserve. And believe his resurrection from the dead shows he's alive right now. And still speaking the words of this gracious invitation in Matthew 11. Let me read it as we close. These are so beautiful. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy And my burden is light. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that those words are still true. That anyone who comes to you, no matter how weary, no matter how burdened and heavy laden, can find rest. You give rest. Rest for our souls. Lord, there is no rest for the wicked. You say in your word, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. And so thank you that you offer that as a free gift. But only if you work in our hearts to see our need for you and our need for rest and our need for forgiveness will we come to you. And so I pray you'd be working in the hearts of any who haven't come to you before that even today they would come to you and discover you're all that you say you are. Rest for Weary souls, a redeemer from sin, a great high priest, everything that this word says you are, Lord, you're just so, you're all sufficient for all our needs. And for those who already have trusted you, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged to know that you intercede for us, to know you sympathize with us, to know you can help us in our temptations, to know you are full of mercy and grace. I pray these things in your name. Amen. We're going to close with In Christ Alone.